Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We're going to be in Proverbs 16, looking at verse 9 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bibles in the seatbacks out there, you can find that on page 539. Proverbs 16, verse 9, the title of our sermon is Making Plans. And the key words for our worshipers in training are heart plans, and Lord. As most of you know, and as I just prayed, a a few of us were in Bremen, Indiana this past week for the Reformed Baptist Network's General Assembly. It it was a, a very good time of fellowship, great conversations, and camaraderie as we sought to, to work together uh, to raise up and send out missionaries in the world and to, to fund church plants. Uh, now, as great as the week was, it started off for the crew that was with me on a, a sort of down note, or at least potentially. On, on Monday afternoon, when it was time for us to head over to the church for our first meeting, uh, we hopped in the car and we took off. We made it out of the driveway only to realize that the right front tire was completely flat. This, as you might imagine, was a problem. We were 20 minutes from anything that resembled civilization, and we desperately needed to get to the church. Uh, We needed to get to the church on time, uh, for obvious reasons, but perhaps... You know, not the least of which, you know, in terms of important reasons, was that uh, Derek, who was with us, is RBNet's web administrator, and he had a job to do. Now, as you likely have already guessed, uh, while we were on the side of the road, I stood by <laughs> while the other, uh, while the men worked to find the spare tire that was sadly missing. But they also attempted and successfully pumped up the flat tire with enough air for us to back it up into the driveway of the VRBO where we were staying. So I was completely useless. But I did call Steve Carr, who was driving up separate from us as I prayed to make contacts, build relationships, and establish support for his family's move to Romania next year. And wouldn't you know what? I called Steve. He was, just, he was a few minutes away. It was a little out of his way, but he graciously stopped by, picked us up, and we got to the church roughly on time. We scarfed down our dinner. Um, I think Derek ate at like 10 p.m., uh, but we, we did get there. And then Steve provided transportation for us uh, for another day until we were able to get the, the, the tire fixed up and, and ready to go. Uh, we, we had our plans that day. But the Lord directed and established our steps. Perhaps another, or a better example of this reality is demonstrated by the fact that I am standing in this pulpit right now. As I mentioned uh, when, we, when we began during the announcements, right, we originally had planned for, for us, Jenkins, to preach here. One of our elders to preach here this morning since I'd been at the, the GA all week. But with uh, the... Russ's brother Bobby dying on Friday. We decided it was best to let him have the time this weekend to focus on being with his family, his mom in particular, and that he would preach another time. And so here I am preaching this morning. We're still beginning to 
we're still planning, sorry, to, to begin working through Lamentations next week. Uh, planning being the operative word. But I, I, I want to take this sermon, I want to take our time this morning and discuss something that I think is of particular relevance to us here at, at RBC as of late. And it's this idea of making plans. Let's admit it. We're not in control. We think we are. We have our plans. We make our schedules. We drum up ideas. But we're not in control. We never were. And, and in a sense, we, right, we never will be. This is a key message in the Bible from cover to cover. I should admit up front that we're going to jump around a little bit. Or I'll, I'll be referencing many texts this morning. Uh, usually we're just very planted in, in one spot, but I'm going to be noting several different ones this morning. Uh, you won't, won't be turning there much, but if you're taking notes, then uh, get ready for a lot of text to write down. And so here we're in Proverbs 16, verse 9. I want to read it, outline it, and then we'll get to work. So Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There are three things, three observations I'd like to make with you this morning from this passage. First, we must not forget that men do indeed make plans. Second, we shouldn't forget that we should make plans. And third, we must not forget that the outcome of those plans is left entirely in God's hands. So we do make plans We should make plans, and we must remember that God alone brings about the fulfillment of those plans in the truest sense of the word. So first, consider with me the fact that we do make plans. We see this in the first part of this verse. The heart of man plans his way. In the Bible, heart is the word used for the volitional center of man, right? It is where our desires reside, which lead to the choices that we make. Right? We are choosing creatures, in other words. Volitional creatures. We are deliberate creatures. We make decisions each and every day. Think about it. How many decisions did you make this, smor- this morning just to get here? I assume that you chose what you would wear or you, you let your spouse choose for you, all right? It wasn't a purely random close your eyes, blindly picking outfits out. You didn't get dressed in the dark. And even if you had done that, that would have been a choice, all right? You chose what you would eat for breakfast this morning or if you would eat breakfast this morning. If your kids are young enough, you chose what they would wear. You chose whether you would come to Sunday school and worship, or if you would just come to worship. You chose what time you would attempt to leave for whichever of those meetings you chose to come to. If you drove here, if you were in the driver's seat, you chose how fast you would drive. You chose where you would park when you got here. You chose... What music you would listen to on the way in. Or what podcast. Or maybe you chose to sit in silence. 
You chose what seat to sit in. Or last night, right? You chose what time you would go to sleep, or at least what time you would attempt to go to sleep. You chose if you would shower last night or this morning, or both, or neither at all. Right? These, are, these are but a few of the decisions that you made just to find yourself in your seat this morning. Not to mention the choices that you made about your vocation or your, your spouse that brought you to Effingham County in the first place. Every day of your life, you make countless decisions. But you don't just make decisions on a moment-by-moment basis. You make plans for the future, for next week, next month, and next year. I know in 2022, it's very uncool to commit to anything more than about 45 minutes ahead of time. But I think for most of us, we still do hold certain kinds of plans, even if loosely, pretty far in advance, right? Not looking for a show of hands here so much, but how many of you already have something planned for 2023 or 2024, right? Maybe it's not fully worked out yet, but you're like, oh, this is a trip we're planning to go on, right? We, we make plans. This is revealed to us in the course of life, but Scripture, as we saw, acknowledges this. In Proverbs 19.21, we read, many are the plans in the mind of a man. We don't just make plans, and we don't just make a few plans. We have many plans, We are volitional, choosing creatures. You have a will, and you exercise that will. This is important, and it's something that we shouldn't forget. But secondly, we also see that, and this is a little less from this passage perhaps, but something that's at least assumed in it, that the rest of the Bible bears out. Not only do you make plans, but you should. You should make plans. Right, as the saying goes, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Making plans isn't really an option. Even if you don't make plans, you simply plan to do nothing, which often isn't a very good plan. So n- naturally, we get that. We see that if you never make plans, then your, your life is just chaos. And even then, you've planned to not plan. But what does the Scripture say about this? Well, Scripture tells us that we ought to make certain choices, right? And I'm sort of, perhaps you might argue that I'm conflating choices and plans here. But I I think they're similar enough that it's, it's helpful to think about them in the same way here. The Bible tells us that we have choices to make. In Genesis 1, 26-28, God tells the man and the woman that he had just made that they were to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And then God commanded the man to eat from every tree in the garden except one. Keep yourself, Adam, from one tree. Adam had a choice. In Genesis 12, 1-4, God commanded Abram to follow him wherever he would lead. And then we read in 12:4 of Genesis... So Abram went. When Abram and his nephew Lot uh, and their respective families had gotten too big for them to travel together, it was leading to, to infighting and they weren't getting along, they decided they chose to separate. Abram going one way and Lot going another. In Exodus 7 and following, we see Pharaoh refuse 
to let the Israelites go to devastating effects on him. Sorry. He, he didn't let Israel go, and that led to devastating effects on him in all of Egypt. So he, he made a choice, and we'll come back to Exodus 7 in a minute. But he did, we are told, harden his heart. He chose, to let, he chose not to let Israel go. In Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, Moses writes, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Those are just a few examples from the Torah. Over and over again, though, in all of Scripture, we see that God sets choices before his creatures and calls on them to decide what they will do. could take up the entirety of our time giving examples, but uh, we won't. The, the point is clear and obvious. We are volitional creatures, and we are called to exercise that volition in this world. Every command in the Bible assumes this fact. And our nature as volitional creatures, arises from having been made in the image of God. The fact that we make choices and should make choices is important, at least because of what it tells us about who we are. Now, when you talk about the image of God with people, um, and you try to unpack what the Bible means by the image of God, you get a variety of different explanations, a variety of different interpretations as to what it means. And I, I think there is a, a sense in which there's many things, many components to being made in the image of God. Certainly the idea of dominion is important, ruling over God's creation. But the fact that we choose, that we do make choices, and we make moral choices, right, tells us something about who we are. And the fact that we're made in God's image here needs to stick with us, right? God, in the beginning, chose. He chose to make the world. He chose to redeem a fallen world. He chose to send His Son to die for fallen sinners like us. God is a chooser. And we who are made in His image are choosers. But there is a difference between our choosing and his choosing, isn't there? God's choosing rests exclusively where? Upon his own will and nothing else. Our choosing, as we're going to turn to here in just a moment, our choosing is contingent upon not just our will, but God's will, and ultimately upon God's will. So look with me in the third place. And we'll spend a, a, a bit more time here and, and in application. But look with me in the third place here where we see the second half, Proverbs 16, 9, right? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God alone brings about the fruition of the plans that we make. 
the heart of man plans many things, but is, it is the Lord who directs. It is the Lord who establishes our actual steps. The Scriptures not only repeatedly call us to make choices, but they also persistently remind us that God is sovereign over those choices. This involves not only our plans, but also our, our words. Look back up at chapter 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So, make your plans. Think carefully over what you're going to say and what you're going to do, but remember that God is the one who rules over all things, even the very words you speak. Or consider the last verse of Proverbs 16. Verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even things that we would call random chance, right? even things that just happen, are a result of God's superintending providence. Perhaps the two best-known biblical examples of the interplay, two, I'd say the two of the three best-known choices of uh, interplay between the choices that God makes and the choices that man makes is found in one in Genesis and one in Exodus. In Genesis 37 through 50, you get the story of Joseph and his jealous brothers who uh, sell him into slavery, and then he ends up in prison, but then he also ends up as second in command over all of Egypt. When Joseph is finally with his brothers, they've kind of had their confrontation. Uh, things go well, but then their father dies, and his brothers are nervous. What's, Jacob, what's Joseph going to do now? What does Joseph tell them? He says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't fear me, because I know something that you don't. What you meant for evil against me God meant for good, not just for me, but for all of Egypt, that many might be saved through my trials. And then 400 years later, after God's, all of God's people had become slaves in Egypt, God called upon Moses to deliver them from that bondage. And here we're back to Exodus 7 and following. In verses 2 and 3, God tells Moses, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I, multiply, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. But then over in chapter 8, verse 15, we read that after the second plague, Pharaoh did what? Hardened his own heart and wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron. And so who was in charge of Joseph going into slavery? Was it his brothers? Was it the Lord? Who, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it Pharaoh? Or was it the Lord? It's clear in both of these passages that while it is difficult for us to grasp how it works... The reality is that while human will is without question involved in these events, God's will superintended all that took place. 
A few other examples. Consider uh, what we read in 1 Samuel 16, when David is anointed as king over Israel. God sends uh, the prophet Samuel to Bethlehem to find Jesse and his sons. For God had appointed, he was told, one of them to be king. When he gets there, he believes that Eliab, Jesse's oldest, was to be God's anointed. But God rejects him. Then Jesse offers Abinadab, but God constrains Samuel once more, and he confirms that God has not chosen him either. Then Jesse offers Shammah, but the Lord rejects him as well. Eventually, the oldest seven of Jesse's sons are paraded and presented before Samuel, and God, through Samuel, rejects all of them. Finally, Samuel has Jesse send for young David out in the fields, the youngest, and uh, it is he, when he's brought forth, that God indicates is his chosen one, his anointed one, and God chooses David over his brothers. Samuel and Jesse had their plans. They had their expectations. They made their choices. But God's purposes stood while theirs fell. Consider the Apostle Paul. Obviously, we have the example in his life from Acts 9. Right? He's on his way to Damascus. This is prior to his conversion to Christ. And he's going to Damascus. Why? So that he can persecute Christians. Paul had his plans. Jesus had other plans. Jesus knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and the Spirit regenerates his heart, and Paul is called into the apostolic ministry in service to Christ. Or consider another example from his life in Acts 16, verses 6-10. through There we're told that Paul and company... Uh, they had come to Mysia, and they were tempting to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. So they went down to Troas, and then, receiving a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia calling to them, Paul sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel there. In Acts 18, 21, Paul's tell, Paul tells the Ephesians that he would gladly return to them if the Lord wills. And then in 18, 27, when Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, he did so. So, there's this interplay here between the will of man, the will of God. Sometimes they seem to work together, sometimes they're working at odds. And the point, then, is that God, without asking for permission, oversees the affairs of men. Sometimes he conveys his will in rather obvious ways. Sometimes he acts more subtly. In the examples that we just considered, whether subtly or overtly, God brought about exactly what he wanted. Sometimes it was in conjunction with the plans and the desires of men, And sometimes it was in contrast to their plans and desires. And so let's take a few minutes here then, make some application, and we'll be done. 
in, in James chapter 4. I will turn to this one. So James 4, beginning in verse 13. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, sometimes you hear people talk about this passage and it it sounds... To me, when I hear some people, it's, it's as if they think that James condemns making plans. But he doesn't. He doesn't condemn making plans. What he does is that he condemns the hubris, the pride, the arrogance that leads us to make plans without considering the reality of God's necessary involvement in our plans. Right? He says, don't don't say you will do this or that. He says, instead, do say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And so this isn't a, a, a command that literally every single time you utter a sentence of a plan that you have to use the phrase, if the Lord wills. It's good to say it occasionally, often even, but in your heart, right, What's the belief? What's the thought? If the Lord wills, I will do this. Make your plans, but keep those plans in proper perspective. If we were to boil all of this down into one sentence, uh, and it's not that long of a sentence, believe it or not, um, it would be this. Make your plans with humility. Trusting God to do with them whatever He wills for your good and His glory. Make your plans with humility. Trusting God to do with them whatever He wills for your good and His glory. I want to dwell for a moment here in closing on on humility. Humility in all of this. Who is the king of your life? Who, who gets the ultimate say in whether you go here or go there? In whether you do this or do that? Who gets the ultimate say in whether you wake up tomorrow or not? Does it regularly cross your mind that you are not the Lord omnipotent? You're not the all-powerful ruler of the cosmos. Now, on the one hand, that probably is a shot to your pride, but isn't it also a relief? You don't have to worry about the goings-on of everything in the world. You're not the ruler. None of us are. All throughout the Bible, 
we are called to remember that we are fallen, finite creatures, and we are completely subject to God's will. And when we rebel against that will, we seek to live according to our own goodness, our own power, our own wisdom. And we often find ourselves in deep, deep trouble. Now sometimes your plans and God's plans seem to align perfectly, don't they? You ever had that experience, that moment? Right? When you, there's something that you want and you start making plans and everything just falls into place. It's lovely. It's wonderful. When that happens, give thanks and press on. But there are other times when your plans, they might align, but only in substance, not in form, right? We hadn't planned on a flat tire, but God did intend for us to get to the church on time. We hadn't planned for me to preach this morning, but God had provided the time for us to be prepared just in case, even with as quickly as things went this week. So things didn't go, they didn't go exactly the way that we think, but maybe the substance of it does. So sometimes they align perfectly, sometimes they don't, but then some, you know, but they still generally work out. But then sometimes God's plans and our plans are radically set against one another. Sometimes our plans are like Job's. Right? To live well and prosper under the smile of God. And his plans are to leave us for a substantial period of time, though not entirely leave us. He leaves us on the ash heap, surrounded in darkness. So what do you do when your plans and God's plans are at loggerheads? What do you do when they're radically unaligned? Well, the first, like Job did, we should worship. Fall to your knees and give yourselves fully to the will of God. But also, we should strive to move our will to be in line with His. So, when your will and God's will seem to be so utterly disconnected, pay attention to what the Lord may be saying to you, what the Lord may be doing in your life. Pay attention to your conscience. Pay attention to God's Word. Pay attention to your obstacles and your opportunities. And submit yourself to God with joy, even if through sorrow. So make your choices and trust God to bring about His good and perfect ends in your life. And lastly, remember... I said that two of the probably three best interplays of God's will and man's will are found in Genesis and Exodus. There's a, a third interplay that I want to mention now from Acts. And I'll set it up this way. Remember, when the worst thing in the world is happening to you, in fact, the worst thing in the world already happened about 2,000 years ago. And just as it was then, so it is now. God was completely involved. Acts 4, 27-28 tells us that the whole city of Jerusalem had conspired against the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did exactly what God's hand and God's plan 
had predestined to take place. In other words, the most evil act of man in all of history, in that act, God was saving the world. So let me ask, have you looked to Jesus who suffered and bled at the hands of angry men and an angry God? Right? For the men, the anger was pure hatred. But what about God? God's anger was pure love. It was love that motivated God to pour out His anger against His one-of-a-kind Son who had become sin, bearing the sin of His people. God poured out His anger on Jesus so that He could pour out His love on you. And so whatever comes to you, whatever triumphs, whatever tragedies, remember this. If you are in Christ, it is all working out for your good. And the sovereign God of the universe is bringing you to himself in love and in holiness. But if you haven't looked to Christ, who died for sinners like you, would you? Would you look with faith to the Lord Jesus so that in the end all of the difficulties, all of the hard providences will work in reverse and bring about glory? Let me close with this. We've experienced a number of hard providences lately here at Redeemer Baptist Church. Um, not all of them, but many of them are in, have come to us in the form of the deaths of family members, of church members, um, or, or regular attenders. I don't know why this is. I don't know exactly what God is doing. But I do know that we can trust God in the doing. And we can know that He is working in us that which is good and pleasing in His sight. And we can entrust ourselves and our loved ones to this God. And we can sing with William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste. Sweet will be the flower. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Amen.